It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. RocklandWorldRadio.com Alright, hello, and welcome to New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs, and we're going to try to report on some of the underreported stories. We were expecting a call in. We're supposed to be talking to congressional candidate Erica Vladimir, who's running for Congress on the east side of Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn and Queens. I just wanted to spotlight a couple of stories that are in the last day or two anyway. Um, number one, there are devastating mid-year cuts happening to the Rochester Public School District. And over 150 teachers are having their jobs cut in the middle of the year, as well as 30-some-odd support staff, mm-hmm. including secretaries, bus drivers, security guards, 22 paraprofessionals, 12 administrators. I mean, how do you do this right in the middle of the school year? So now that means they're going to have to increase class sizes, and uh, other teachers are going to have to pick up the load. Uh, students are going to be completely deprived. They're going to get less time with their teachers. What is going on? Rochester, it's devastating. It's a travesty. So what I found that was pretty interesting in, uh, real quick, in the local reporting, because I was trying to figure out how can this happen? What's going on? And so in the local press up in Rochester, I had to go back a couple of articles, but they blame this on overspending. And they broke down the overspending as follows. Employee benefits, substitute teachers, Charter school tuition, retirement benefits, and contract transportation. So some of that stuff seems pretty unavoidable, and it you know it might just be a matter uh, that they're not you know managing their money or there isn't enough money coming in compared on to what's going out. But charter school tuition. So is this another example of how public schools are being devastated because of the expansion of charter schools or the existence of charter schools? Not cool. There's another story that I heard about today. There was a commission or panel convened to take a look at the graduation requirements for New York State. And this has been a long time coming. And we announced on this show a while back that Achieve Incorporated was contracted to be on this panel along with actual educators, experts, stakeholders, administrators, representatives of constituent groups such as parents and school boards and superintendents. Well, you know, aside from all those people being on the board, there's also this Achieve Incorporated. And you're asking, what is that? Well, that's one of these ed reform groups that has been pushing standardized testing and Common Core and charter schools and all this stuff for years and years and years. People were outraged because, you know, it's like, well, how did these guys get on the board? Apparently, it was a decision of outgoing education acting commissioner, Elizabeth Berlin. It's really cool when you make an unpopular decision and you're leaving because it's like nobody can do anything about it. The money for this was provided by a $100,000 grant given to this commission for this purpose in order to get Achieve Incorporated on this panel. And it was donated by the Gates Foundation, who is billionaire Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, expanding charter schools and artificially propping up charter schools and artificially promoting and advertising and maintaining charter schools. I just heard of an incredible story in his home state of Washington State, how much Bill Gates actually has done to promote charter schools 
in Washington state, they actually had multiple state referendums against charter schools, and then he kept getting it back on the ballot, basically by buying influence, until they finally won a referendum by 50.69%, 50.69%, and then charter schools were allowed to exist, except only with an infusion of, I think, $11 million, so it, they're not really viable on their own. And so what this panel has received from Achieve Inc., in other words, what work did they do for the $100,000? And this was quick. This is just a matter of a couple of weeks. They turned around and made a report to the panel, and it has false information in it. They are promoting testing, and they um, put out an information packet that claimed that uh, 28 states require high school exit exams You know, in 2019 now. And that's not true. There's only 11 left. It's been on the decline. Some people had to correct this information. Achieve has been put on this panel in order to sway them, in order to persuade them. And so now it's taking other people's time and money and volunteerism to actually fact check this so that the panel can get the correct information and make the correct decision, hopefully based on the input of stakeholders and not Achieve Incorporated. But yeah, that's another story that really kind of gets you going when you hear about it. The fact that Bill Gates is still buying influence in New York State so easily, he just snaps his fingers and then this education reform, corporate, nonprofit, whatever, think tank group is making fake recommendations, right? Not so hot. Alright, so we also have another cool video online, Hassan Minaj, who is a comedian, very funny comedian, is online, and I think he has like an uh, HBO show or a Netflix show. It's really worthwhile watching, you know, maybe like a 15 minute clip, but it's all about fake philanthropy. And he's destroying these myths about these billionaires and these foundations helping society. They're getting enormous tax breaks for their contributions, which they leverage not only into PR, but tax advantages, right? I mean, you know, if they have income, this will offset it. And sometimes, you know, it's well worth it for these foundations to donate to schools because in some cases they have doubled their money in like a 10 or 11 year span by investing in charter school construction and charter school financing and charter school bonds, you know, where they package all the bonds together. So um, it's really worth watching. Uh, You could check it out on YouTube. It's called Why Billionaires Won't Save Us. And it's actually very funny, and it's kind of accessible to everybody. This is our call coming in. Is this Erica? This is Erica. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. Great. Thanks for calling in. So, folks, this is Erica Vladimir. She is running against incumbent Democrat Carolyn Maloney. Which district is it the, again? The f- it's the it's the twelfth. The twelfth district. Okay, and yeah, let's dive right in. So, sure. if you could first give us the status of the race. So, how many people have announced that they're in this primary so far? Sure, there are five of us total, and that includes Carolyn. So, four people who are primarying her. I'm really focused on getting on the ground and talking to people and having meaningful conversations, you know, with the way that politics and government is going, different priorities are are coming to the forefront. And so I'm really looking to have those conversations. I mean, one of my complaints about the uh, teachers union, the the NYSET, uh, the statewide teachers union, 
is that um, they, sometimes they, they won't endorse a candidate who has the better policy because, you know, if it seems like they don't have a great shot at winning or if they're a long shot at winning, they, they're kind of afraid of alienating the other candidate who might win, even though they have the worst policy. Yeah, you know, I, what we've been seeing and what I hope continues in the 2020 race is that there are a lot of advocates who are recognizing that one of the best ways and one of the strongest ways we can take our advocacy to the next level is by running for office. And by putting ourselves out there, um, you know, showing that we will be those bold leaders, not just representatives, there are different organizations who will rally around those different candidates. And I think we really saw that on the state level here in New York in 2018 with candidates and now senators like Senator Biagi and Senator Salazar. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot of people, not just in New York, but across the country are really willing to take take a risk and, and go out on a limb and support first-time candidates who have a new vision um, and a bold vision for what it means to govern and represent. You're referring to all of these cool new groups. You know, in New York City, there's a bunch of them. No IDC was considered very successful, No IDC NY, and you've, you've been involved in that group, right? Yeah, I was really fortunate to work with No IDC New York. Um, closer to the, the primary, um, but, you know, that is an amazing coalition of advocates and activists and organizers and organizations that recognize when you go out there and you talk to people and have those real meaningful conversations and help them understand that we can actually have better representation, that we don't need to settle with for fine and okay representation. Mm -hmm. What it means is we can all come together and start, you know, demanding better and having our voices heard at the ballot box. And, of course, No IDC NY is not the only one. There's also the Indivisible groups. There's also Rise and Resist. There's also uh, Make New York True Blue. I mean, there's so many in the city that are willing to get behind the the better candidate, the more progressive candidate. And it's a very welcome departure from some of these kind of like establishment institutional organizations which have been around a long time and they just kind of play by the same rules over and over again even if the situation's changing. I mean, you know, right now people's hair is on fire. We have, you know, Trump in the White House. We have Cuomo up in Albany. You know, schools aren't being funded. There's uh, problems um, just getting them to fulfill their promises around campaign finance and, you know, so many issues where there's actually Democrats in charge that aren't getting it done. Yeah. You know, that's what I recognized in your candidacy. And when I spoke to you, we I was very, very impressed on your positions in the education sphere. And maybe if we can do a quick lightning round, we can go through them because I noticed that, you know, you were really, really firmly dead set against the privatization movement. This is the right. ed reformers and the billionaires that kind of have their finger on the scale, not only in campaign donations, but also in think tanks and the revolving door. And they really get their policies across. And we've been subject to their policies, which is uh, charter schools, standardized testing, the common core standards for years and years, and we've been suffering under them. So why don't you give us a little kind of view of how you feel about this defense of public education war that's going on? 
Yeah, so, you know, I want to backtrack a little bit and, and just let you know, education was my first policy passion. Um, I really got my first taste of educational inequities when I was working as a public ally um, in Hartford. Um, public Allies is a nonprofit leadership training program through AmeriCorps. Um, and through the Urban League of Greater Hartford, where I was placed, I was working with high school students in the Hartford Public High School's, uh, high school district. And, this was a high and you know, a lot of the work that I was trying to do with the students, I would go and talk to the principals. I would go and talk to the dean of students. I would talk to the guidance counselors if I could find one or a social worker if they happened to be there for half a day. And a lot of it was my hands are tied by the laws. This is what the law says. This is what I have to do. I can't do anything more. I can't do anything less. And I realized that it's, it's really that structure and this, and we really need to create systemic changes. And that's what really pushed me to go to law school was so this way I could understand the rules, the laws, the policies that teachers and principals and guidance counselors have to work under and be able to create that connection with them so this way we can change those policies to reflect what's really happening in schools and that we're not stopping our administrators and our teachers from helping students but actually empowering them to do so. And so after law school, I went and I worked for the New York State Senate. Um, I got a fellowship um, through their, it uh, was run through their student programs, but it was a graduate program. And that was where I really got to sink my teeth into education policy and represent elected officials at the budget negotiation tables uh, for education. Um, being able to talk about, you know, universal pre-K and what those structures are going to look like. Um, even when charter school basic tuition, you know, came around, talking about that and, and being able to work with representatives and doing research on that and even helping our elected officials understand what that would look like on the ground and talking to, you know, the, the teachers union, talking to different um, educational advocacy organizations mm -hmm. about how they feel about, you know, these proposals. And, you know, it was really something that I, I really enjoyed doing. I loved being able to help coalition build and bring elected officials and advocacy organizations together. You know, and unfortunately, I ended up just leaving my position with the New York State Senate. Yeah. Um, but then I really missed government work. And so within a year of being outside of government, um, I accepted a position with the New York City Independent Budget Office. And I worked on their education team. And this is where I really started to understand just how much of an impact our federal government has on the everyday lives of our students. This is where standardized testing comes from. And I'm sorry, but as we continue to champion educating the whole child, we have to stop reducing them and their classrooms, their teachers, and their schools and our school districts to a standardized test score. And so I realized that as a, you know, a congressional representative who's really focused on education, our federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, can play a much stronger role, not only in protecting the civil rights of our students, but actually making sure that they are getting a robust, free, appropriate public education that's going to help our students become engaged, well-informed voting citizens. Right. And 
it sounded like, you know, when you were working as a New York State Senate aide, it sounded like you were the person that was actually reading <laughs> the legislation and actually writing and marking up and editing the, the legislation. And then, I mean, take us behind the scene and then you kind of explain it to the actual politician who's, you know, the elected officials who are actually voting on it. Is that is that kind of how it worked? Yeah, you know, as as elected officials, you know, some people have their their strengths when it comes to certain policies and but you can't be a a professional and an expert on on everything. Right. And so as their education analyst in council, I was really able to focus on what was happening in the education advocacy world. And you're right, you know, we would have bills that would, you know, be introduced. And it was my job to go through them um, and see how they would impact the elected officials and their district and then work with them to help them understand it. So, you know, when Governor Cuomo was putting in the APPR, the teacher evaluation system, Mm -hmm. it was really intricate language because that's another thing, too. Our laws aren't written in a way that just any person can sit down and totally comprehend it on first read. Even me, who's like, you know, who has been doing this for years, you know, it really isn't, it takes a lot of detailed um, attention to looking at every specific word. And so when it comes to something like the teacher evaluation system, you know, I created flowcharts to help our elected leaders to know, like, what they were actually trying to do in this bill and then provide them some insight as to, you know, someone who focuses on the education legislation, how I felt about it, how I think it would have been impacting the teachers in their district, the students, the families in their district. And, you know, ultimately it was the elected officials' decision as to how they wanted to move forward. But I was the one who, you know, was there to help inform them um, about the legislation. And I really loved being able to do that. Right. You brought up the uh, teacher evaluation system here in New York, APPR. That's what really brought me into activism um, because I was, as a teacher, I was affected by it. And, uh, you know, I was just completely outraged at how absurd it was when it was first introduced. I am an art teacher, and they told me in 2013 that my teacher evaluation was going to be based on math scores. And I, I just could not believe my ears. And, you know, I kind of bided my time. But a couple of months or a year later, I actually got the results back. And, you know, I was rated ineffective because of the math scores. You know, my observations and my personal evaluations, everything was fine, except that one component, the math scores was only like a four out of 20. And it brought my entire <laughs> evaluation into the toilet. And I said, you know, this isn't fair. If this is happening to me, this is happening to thousands of other people. And it's absurd. It has nothing to do with what I teach. And, you know, it's just kind of like a compliance mechanism. You know, here I am a couple years later. People need to know that it's literally millions of dollars being wasted and man hours and going over these things where reliance on a a test score, it, it doesn't actually reflect students' abilities, students learning, and then even farther from that, it doesn't reflect, you know, the teacher's input, because how do you know, you know, this, that kid wasn't taught at home, or how do you know the kid isn't getting a private tutor? I mean, there's just no way of knowing what made them fill out those bubbles, right, good or bad. Right, exactly, and I, I think, you know, this the, the APPR fiasco really um, is indicative of, of two things. So first, and as you were just mentioning, not every student is walking into that classroom as prepared as maybe the student next to them in or you know and ready to take a standardized test 
we can't ask our students just to leave everything at the door when it comes to maybe the trauma that they have suffered or have been, you know, coping with. Um, how do we know, you know, in a school system where 114,000 students are homeless, how are we supposed to expect them to be able to sit down and take a standardized test and do their best and then evaluate our teachers on that? That is, like you said, reducing them to a standardized test score after, as opposed to realizing that they're a whole child and that education goes above and beyond being able to fill in the correct bubble. And I think another big problem is that it's policies like this that are being created and drafted and negotiated on a political level behind closed doors mm -hmm. um, late at night, and there's not enough input. You know, um, I, I know you know a little bit about, you know, the budget and how the budget works on the state level. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, is that we're hearing this on all levels of government. A lot of people would be horrified if they saw that the way our laws are actually created and, and voted on. And it's because there's not enough input by the very people who were affected by that. How many teachers were actually spoken to when they were implementing the APPR system? Um, you know, how long did it take them? I mean, I know I was in, in that negotiation room about like 3 o'clock in the morning on multiple occasions. And this is too important. The education of our children is way too important to be negotiated on a political level behind closed doors in the middle of the night. Right. I mean, I believe this was part of federal legislation, a race to yeah. the top that was being yeah. implemented. And, you know, I did uh, get a, a, a second or a minute to ask Randy Weingarten, uh, you know, it was in the middle of a, of a noisy rally and everything. But I said, how could our union, because, you know, the UFT had to sign off on it. Mm -hmm. How could our union, and NYSIT, you know, the state union, how could our union just sign off on this it's the most ridiculous thing ever and you know what she told me you know long story short she was like well we had to agree to it you know as a certain percentage of a teacher's evaluation because they were threatening a much larger percentage and so you know they felt like they were mitigating the problem by negotiating it to a smaller percentage like 20 percent let's say so basically it was rammed down the throats of teachers is what she was saying yep. You know, education does not get the attention it deserves. You know, I write uh, articles about education, so I'm the first one to tell you, you know, we are at the kids' table of news and reporting. And even when the WikiLeaks came out, there was a lot about education there, hundreds of pages, you know, of stuff. And it just it didn't get a single article anywhere because people don't follow the ins and outs of education. You know, at the end of the day, they're just worried about their situation and their kids and their taxes and, you know, how it affects them. But you get into the alphabet soup and you get into, you know, these laws and, you know, what's federal and what's state and, you know, the way that they're really monkeying around with stuff. You you say that the legislation is, is confusingly written. I believe that that's on purpose. You know, they want to mm -hmm. slow people down and they want to get things through in the middle of the night and, you know, not give people a chance to read it. And sometimes it's it's so confusingly written that it doesn't even make sense. I mean, you can't, you know, just to follow the law and implement the law, it doesn't make sense, you know, let alone having to contest it, you know, with like a lawsuit, you know, or a test case or something. So, you know, it really is a mess. But 
for years and years and years, it's kind of been a, bar, a bipartisan push, Democrats and Republicans, that do take donations from these Wall Street hedge funders and high-tech millionaires and billionaires. It really got kind of like dispersed after the ESSA law passed, and it made right. it kind of like a state-to-state battle, right? I mean, were you were you working for New York State when that happened, when the ESSA law passed, uh, and then it kind of came to the state house instead of being a federal issue? No, I think at, at, that, at that point I had already left the state. Okay. Um, but it was definitely something, you know, I was keeping my eye on. Uh, I was working when, when they had finally signed the, signed the law. Um, I think I was, I was just starting to work for, for New York City. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, but that in and of itself, you know, seeing how, how long they took to actually start negotiating and trying to flesh out ESO, you know, and No Child Left Behind was expired. And, you know, they con- they continue to adhere to it. And, and so much wasn't necessarily looked at. There really wasn't a consensus, there, and that was by politicians. Um, there really wasn't a consensus of the best way to move forward. And so I think a lot of things were left on the table um, that, that should have been standardized testing. Um, you know, that also includes, like, Title I and the funding formulas. Right. Um, you know, when, when there's so many studies out there that show that even the richest school districts are still getting more money per student under Title I and Title I-A. And instead of looking to, you know, take the time to actually find meaningful solutions to these funding formulas, they stuck in something about, you know, the um, Institute for Educational Sciences doing, conducting a study. And that has find that that came out, I think you and I had actually talked about that um, over the summer, and it had just recently come out, but what is happening with that? And where are our New York congressional representatives on this? Right. We are in the largest school district in the country, 1.1 million children. How many of our congressional representatives in New York City are sitting on the Education and Labor Committee and demanding that we are starting to actually educate the whole child and that we are going to protect the civil rights of our students instead of reducing them to a standardized test score? Why are we not fully funding the Individuals with Disability Education Act? Where are our congressional leaders championing and fighting for this funding and for this support from the federal level? It's true. It really does go by the wayside. And you you could probably say the same thing about our senators, too. Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand not involved in the education battles in the Senate level, where it was a lot more publicized and there was, you know, some coverage and articles and there was pressure put on key senators that were on the the education committee. But in the House, you know, at that time, you know, I know uh, Representative Bobby Scott was involved and I couldn't name another House member that was doing anything. You know, they were just kind of rubber stamping and moving things through. So as a candidate, and if you were elected and you did go to Washington, D.C. to represent New York, and you're mm-hmm. and you're trying to bring attention to these to these uh, issues. I know that it would probably be a sure bet that you would love to get a spot on the education committee, <laughs> but um, but but policy wise, right? Because you've worked with Title One, you probably know a lot more than me and anybody else listening. So policy wise, what would be like the top line prescription to even things out to level the playing field for all these kids that are in schools that are underfunded? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to Title I, what, what I'm 
really found through the research that I did when I was an analyst at the city's independent budget office, and I actually um, published a paper about this, is that the funding of Title I is capped. So the amount of money that is that should be going to states and then going down to our school districts and our schools through Title I-A funding is is capped be you know lower than than what these schools should be getting based on the the free and reduced price lunch status of mm-hmm. of students and we also see in New York in New York City that is that number is growing but outside of New York City but within New York State the number of students who qualify for Title I funding is growing faster and even beyond that there are other states that are having that are increasing the number of students who are qualified for Title I faster than New York State. And yet since over the last, I think it was about 10 years, yeah, so the last 10 years, federal funding under, under Title I has only increased by about $2 billion. Ooh, New York State itself gets $1.6 billion yeah. in Title I funding. Yeah. And so that additional $2 billion needs to be spread out across 50 states. Yeah. So there is no way that is going to keep pace with the number of students who are qualifying. And so all of the states and the amount of money that they are provided for Title I is rationally reduced. And so there is no money from the get-go. There's not enough money to provide the services that students deserve and are legally required to receive under Title I. Yeah. And so, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, I, I, I... I really like to talk about how the fact that the federal government can be doing more than just providing funding. But this right here is one of those opportunities that I will say we need more funding. The federal government should be fully funding Title I. And that also carries over into other programs like the Individuals with Disability Education Act. That right. in and of itself is not Yes, yeah, special funded. ed funding. It's the same thing with special ed funding. There's a certain amount, and it's legally due, and it's out, and it's supposed to be allocated, but the money just isn't there. So we end up talking about percentages, right? Like New right. York gets like 30% or Michigan gets like 35%. I mean, it's just pennies on the dollar of what, what the law says. And, right. and and what the kids actually need. When it comes down to brass tacks, the politicians that are writing the budget laws just say, Well, I'm not I'm not gonna fund it. And it does bring up, you know, a valid question, the question of how it's going to be paid for. So, I mean, we can agree, you know, I think Bernie's uh, and Elizabeth Warren and Biden and Buttigieg even have all agreed that Title I funding needs to be tripled or in the case of Elizabeth Warren, quadrupled. And they all have these different mechanisms to pay for it. So as a House member, what would your uh, policy prescription be for uh, where the money comes from? Yeah, you know, I think, again, this is part of that huge systemic um, overhaul and systemic reform that that we as a government and as a society uh, desperately need. Um, I, you know, firmly believe that what we as a government are funding is reflective of what our priorities are or should be, Mm -hmm. I, I should say. And right now, what we are funding as a federal government is not reflective of the values of my neighbors, of my community, of my family, of my friends. And a lot of us are seeing that, too. We, we are ready and we are willing to fight for a more compassionate, inclusive, and forward-thinking society. And that, in, and that means that the funding has to be there. We demand that the funding 
prioritizes those values. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that we, we need, we, we certainly need additional funding, but there's funding that's being spent in ways that don't, uh, you know, reflect what we are looking for. Standardized anymore. testing. And, right. And the fact is, is that we're already paying for a lot of this on the back end. When students are dropping out of high school and uh, are not getting, you know, the, the jobs that they deserve because they don't have the degrees, we're going to be paying for that as a society because we are not lifting them up to their full economic potential. That's a great we point. We're pushing students, you know, out and not providing free public college for them to get that bachelor's degree. We are, again, not supporting them to become, you know, reach their full economic potential. That's and we as, you know, a communities and societies are paying for that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's common sense that if we allow needy kids to tap into social services when they're very, very young, that it would avoid them having to um, tap into social services later on in life when, it, you know, when, it's, when things are a lot more serious, when it's the criminal justice system or the mental health system or, you know, the health care system or, you know, supplement for uh, rent and food stamps and on and, and all this stuff to make, you know, make happy, healthy kids on the front end of, of the assembly line, right? I mean, doesn't, right. It, doesn't it seem like it makes sense we need a lot more of these wraparound services the younger the kids are? Yeah, it, it doesn't even seem to make sense. It makes complete sense. And that's really a big part of, you know, the, the, the systemic reform that we need. And I firmly believe that education is a cornerstone of that. As we are trying to, you know, change what our society values and, and how we're going to, you know, support one another versus trying to climb over one another to get ahead and leave other people behind, we're done with that. We recognize that, you know, we can we can achieve our full potential and also help our neighbors and our families do the same thing. And so, you know, that we need to have that reflective in our education. It's not just about academics. It's about educating the whole child. And that does include social services. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of the community school model. I think that is really reflective because it's not a one-size-fits-all, kind of like how they tried to do with Common Core across Mm -hmm. the country. This, I mean, community is right there in the name. It means we look at who these students are, where their families are coming from, the type of services they need, and we start building a more cohesive, strong, tight-knit community around them. So it's not just the students who are getting an academic education. They're getting a social education. They're getting emotional support, psychological, medical, and their families are too. This way, it's not just, you know, they're, they're getting everything they need inside the school building, but also outside of the school building. Uh, definitely agreed. So I know that you are a supporter of the NAACP moratorium on charter schools. And w- uh, what Correct. that would do would uh, put a freeze on new charter schools at the federal level. And then mm-hmm. it would start, you know, discussions or, or reviews of how those schools impact the district schools. I just did a story about up in Rochester. Uh, it was announced yesterday or the day before. They're making devastating mid-year cuts to yeah. you know, over a hundred teachers and you know maybe maybe two hundred staff altogether, uh, right now at this point in the year. And when you look up why this is happening, they say that their overspending was attributed into about f- five different buckets, such as you know pensions and benefits. But one of the buckets was charter tuition, 
and mm-hmm. I was shaking my head. I was like, you know, there you go. It's just this chipping away again and again. So I know that you have a strong position, you know, against charter schools. Is there something you'd like to add? Because there are different flavors of charter schools. Um, you know, I would concede that mom and pa charter schools are not the same as the big, you know, success academy corporate chains and networks that have for-profit management organizations attached to them and these big finance deals and construction bonds. And there are charters, you know, there are some that do concentrate on high-needs kids. I mean, that's their focus, that's their mission. You know, and so there is more of a case to be made. But when I talk to Diane Rabich, she's like, absolutely not. She's like, you know, it does not make any sense to have two systems that compete against each other. And she feels that all of those schools can work within the public system. It would be better and they would help, you know, they would work kind of like hand-in-glove with the district schools if if they were part of the district. So what is your, I mean, you know, where do you fall on that? Because I know that, you know, different people have different levels of, um, you know, opposition to, uh, to charters. Yeah. So, you know, as, as I understand it, and, and when I was first learning ab- about charter schools, I, I was taught that charter schools were supposed to come into existence to help test different ways to help educate students. It was supposed to create, yeah, innovative, you know, ways to educate students. And then those innovative practices would then be brought over to our traditional public schools and implemented there. And charter schools were, in essence, supposed to be temporary. But just like you said, as Diane Ravitch said, we are now having two different school systems that are competing. One is our traditional public school system, and the other is a, well, they're a public school system when it's easy for them and when it benefits them to be a public school system. And then they're not totally public schools when it doesn't benefit them to be public schools. Right, for And I do think here in New York City, you know, we definitely see that those charter networks are not the same and are much more geared towards teaching to the test. And they use that as a way to prop themselves up. And, you know, you mentioned Success Academy. They like, you know, they like to tout that they have the the highest third grade through eighth grade ELA math scores. And, mm-hmm. and look how great their students did on the standardized test. And, again, I think this goes back to, you know, when we're looking at charter schools and saying that they might be better than our traditional public schools, well, how are we evaluating them on that? Are we using the standardized test? Is that how parents are being asked to evaluate how well charter schools are doing in comparison to traditional public schools? Because if that's the case, then I would argue that charter schools are not doing great. And that just because their students are achieving higher scores on a standardized test does not make them, you know, does not mean that they are providing that, you know, free, appropriate, public, robust education that our children deserve. They're not getting that sound basic education that they are constitutionally, you know, afforded here in New York State. Right. And so, you know, I, I do think that our education system needs a complete overhaul. I don't think charter schools building an entirely new system outside of our public school system 
is the answer. And because it's been growing into its own system, I do think we need to put a moratorium on it. I do think we need to take a look back and say, what was work, What was the purpose of charter schools in the beginning? How have we gotten away from that? And what can we do in our traditional public school system to build on what was supposed to happen in charter schools in the first place? And if charter schools want to become traditional public schools, then that is great. That means that they have to have the same type of transparency and that they're, they're going to be, you know, unionized and that they can't sit there and try and siphon out students, especially because they have disciplinary issues or because they, you know, require services because they're classified in special education. If they want to be part of our education system, then be a public school. Full stop. When we talk about um, some of the players, Governor Cuomo is decisively pro-charter, has been for a long time, and his mm-hmm. some of his biggest funders uh, sit on the board of Success Academy and the other charter schools, knowing full well that uh, Cuomo uh, has been an, an ally. Also, Bloomberg, you know, when he was the mayor of New York City, was an ally. And some of these players are literally the vulture fund managers, you know, the the people that invested in Puerto Rico and they kind of did a hostile takeover of the energy sector and they they bought debt for pennies on the dollar. So this is, I mean, I know there's two or three guys that, that are currently on the board of Success Academy. But, you know, there's also, I mean, you know, like uh, Dan Loeb and then, you know, some of the founders are like Paul Singer and um, mm-hmm. Julian Richardson and Seth Klarman. And these guys have more money than, you know, than God. And part of the sleight of hand is that they get to act like they're philanthropists because they're working in education. They're donating their time and their money to, to schools, right, after all. And, you know, they feel great about that, you know, and they're telling their mothers and their grandmothers, hey, I'm, I'm a philanthropist, I'm a philanthropist. But really what they're doing is they're nibbling away at the percentage of unionized schools, right? And, yeah. and so that's, that's a huge benefit for them. Another thing is the financing arrangements, you know, where these guys are actually benefiting. And I don't want to say the word profiting because they're not actually making profit, but they are making these incredible um, tax breaks. I mean, these tax deferments, right? In other words, they can take, uh, they can get tax credits off of their other income that you know makes it makes it extremely lucrative, and it's it's um, construction of charters and then the financing of the construction, which becomes these complex financial instruments, you know, that we saw, you know, and during the Wall Street collapse, it's like, you know, they take a whole bunch of charter school construction plays and they kind of like bind them all together and, you know, then and then they sell shares of that on Wall Street and these are right. bonds that are that are advertising uh, returns of 17, 18, 20%. That I, I saw the ads on the website the other day. I mean, that, that's an incredible return. And, you know, the way that they make that money is, is that after the schools are, are completed, the taxpayers is paying rent to these bondholders, to these leaseholders, to the property, you know, owners. And that is paid out over time. And, you know, and that's how the bonds are fulfilled. And that story really hasn't been told either, you know, is that, you know, it's kind of like a, a cash cow. At the same time, they're they're kind of like de-unionizing the teacher force. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing that as we even look on, on the state level. And who is suffering from this? And this is the, the, our, our students. 
our education system is a public education system, which means everybody should have an, an equitable access to get the education that they deserve to be a well-rounded, well-informed voting citizen. And that is not happening when we have these two different competing education systems. There is no need for it. I know that our traditional public schools right here in New York City could really benefit from a lot of different space. And more space, our, our classrooms are severely overcrowded. Oh, yeah. And so why, you know, traditional public schools or public schools should all have access to, you know, capital funding. And we need to make sure that it's that they're not just getting, you know, funding for it, but that it's, it's being overseen by the administration just as effectively from, you know, one pot of funding to the next. Mm-hmm. And charter schools, because they're not, you know, quote-unquote, traditional public schools, they get a lot more leeway. They're operating as a business. Our education system is not a business. It is a public good, and that's what it should be treated as such. And the more that we allow charter schools to act like businesses, the less we get away from that. Yeah, and charter schools are also written into these new federal laws. You know, part of Donald Trump's federal tax overhaul, what does he call the tax reform bill, included expansion of these opportunity zones, which is another one of these vehicles that, you know, if you're doing a, a charter school construction or financing in one of these opportunity zones, which are these designated areas, that that automatically makes it qualify. And you know, we're starting to see New York Times pieces and exposés that these opportunity zones are getting greenlighted without meeting the actual requirements that, you know, that all the others have. So there's right. there's the new markets tax credit. And, you know, it, it really is just like going back years and years, you know, these kind of um, they want they do want to draw in private investment into these low-income neighborhoods. And, you know, you could say that's worthwhile, but you're dealing with, like, hedge fund managers and these, like, really tricky high-finance people. And so they find ways of, like, building a luxury condo in a bad neighborhood or end up, like, with a, a lease on a charter school that ends up being one of these balloon leases that, you know, 20 years out, you know, it, it, it has, a, you know, a real, you know, it really inflates and it has a negative consequence for the taxpayer. So, um, I mean, you know, it's, I think it's really hazardous trusting these guys, but these are the guys that were funding, um, you know, Cuomo for years and Republicans. I mean, Dan Loeb is one example that was personal friends with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and funding Andrew Cuomo at the same time. And, you know, and, and Cuomo famously decided that he was going to introduce Joe Biden to all his, of his funders. So, um, you know, I you know, it is tricky on the you know on the campaign finance. So you know, maybe um, pivoting back to your race, can you talk a little bit about the other candidates that you're facing and um, some of the funding streams and you know what kind of funding that you're going to be committing to taking? Yeah. So you know, I what is what's so great, and we're seeing this not just in my race, but I think in a lot of different races here in New York City. New York State and across the country is that a lot of first-time candidates are recognizing the um, the power there is in going from advocacy and taking that to an elect uh, an elected position level of of advocacy, and so you know 
the the other people who are, are running in this race, there's a lot of different um, policies that we all agree on because we come from that progressive advocacy world. And I think what separates me from them is that I am also coming with legislative experience and also legislative success, um, mainly around workplace protections against harassment and discrimination. Oh, yeah, but, we you know, what we also are all realizing is that as first-time candidates, you know, we're also, I'm also a grassroots candidate. And so that means I'm not taking corporate PAC money. I'm not taking real estate development money. I'm not taking fossil fuel money or from companies that invest in fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, it's time that our campaign finance and, and the way that we are funding our campaigns is more about, you know, again, reflective of our values. And it also, I, I truly believe, reflects how we are going to represent and lead as elected officials. And so, you know, while I'm, you know, at this point making all these pledges to not take that type of money, the fact is, is that the incumbent takes a lot of that money. She takes money from BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset management company, and invests in fossil fuels, in coal, in oil, in gas. Yeah. And yet she claims to support the Green New Deal. Right. You know, to me, that is, you know, does not, you Two know, jive. That, that is more, her taking that money is more reflective of her values against the Green New Deal. Right. How can we possibly believe that somebody who takes that kind of money is going to, you know, put all their blood, sweat, and tears in helping us combat this climate crisis and transitioning over to a green economy? And so... But unfortunately, again, this is what we're up against as first-time grassroots candidates, which is why, you know, all the support we can get is, is really helpful, especially from small-dollar donations, because that shows that we are building a movement. You know, this isn't just about trying to secure a job and keep a job, because being a better uh, representative is not a job. It's an honor and it's a privilege, mm-hmm. and it should be treated that way. Um, but until we have real meaningful campaign finance reform on the federal level, like a public campaign, you know, finance matching system that we have here on the city, um, you know, a lot of us first-time candidates are going to have even more of an uphill battle. Yeah, it's terrible. I saw Kamala Harris when she dropped out. She said that she just couldn't raise money. And, yeah. and you know, I think with Bloomberg just getting into the race, she was saying, like, regular people can't just keep up with these billionaires. Michael Bloomberg put $35 million into the race in, like, a space of two weeks. And right. all of the candidates altogether hadn't even spent, like, you know, $16 million. So, and then, yeah. and, and then there's Tom Steyer besides that. So... You know, right, it's, right, it, exactly, and and look, and that's that's how it's always been. That's how it's always been in campaigns, and that just trickles over to how how it's always been in government, and how our priorities are are put together um, on you know the federal level, the state level, and all of government, and and because of that, that's that's how we got to where we are today. And I don't think a lot of us really like where we are today as a government and as a society. And so that means it's time for us to change the system. And campaign finance reform is a big part of that. Yeah, I think it is the biggest. I honestly do. Or at least it's like the kind of like underlying issue. Because when it comes to education, we really can get into the weeds of policy and everything. But basically, what what I surmise after all these years is that it's basically a bunch of really, really rich people that are trying to avoid paying higher taxes. 
And, yep. you know, and a big part of that is, you know, school funding. School funding is one of the biggest budget lines there is across the country, federally and state to state. It's very easy for politicians to say, well, let's just raise taxes on the extremely rich to plug up these gaps. And, you know, New York actually has done that. That's what foundation aid started flowing after 2007, 2008. And then Cuomo comes in and he turned the tide on it. And he coincidentally had all these millionaire and billionaire hedge fund donors. And he's been pushing these austerity policies ever since. And he has not been willing to restore the millionaire's tax here in New York State to what it was. And right. on, the, on the federal level, you have proposals now for a couple of competing proposals for wealth taxes, which is a whole new conversation for 2020, you know, on, on the federal level. Taking a look at this money where it is, I mean, when you see a billionaire like Tom Steyer write a check for $40 million, I mean, that could fund dozens of schools for an entire year. And the guy's just wasting it all on TV ads that nobody cares about. And it does seem like maybe the government needs to step in at some point, because what we're talking about, it isn't distribution of wealth, like, you know, oh, I'm, we're stealing from the rich. This is like poor kids that are not getting basic minimums and that it's costing us more because of that on the back end because of all the burden that it puts on society for jails and prisons and you know hospitals and you know the welfare state you know it's not fair those those kids are viable human beings that if they were given the same opportunities as the kids up in the suburbs they would do just fine and research shows this so yeah exactly and like you said I totally agree I think it's time for government to step in just not the way the government is right now, because the government that we have right now is not going to change anything because it benefits them. Right. And that's why we need new voices and new vision and new representation. Is You need elected officials who understand that it's more than just about representation. It's actually about leadership and recognizing that, you know, all of these systems are, are connected to one another. And you really just, you know, were able to weave that in you know, through what you were just saying. And so I think it's really important that if we put in new, bold representation, new voices and new leadership, then we're going to be able to actually start creating that systemic change and start creating more meaningful reform. And we're going to get people in office whose values reflect those of, of our communities, of our families, and of our schools. And that is going to benefit our children and their education. Right. It's going to be essential to talk about. I know I know people get frustrated because they're like, you know, no, I want to hear the specific policy. Right. And, you know, you really do have to talk about just the values and the character of the person like and, and how hard they're willing to fight to represent actual middle class people and working class people. Because, you know, even if you do a wealth tax, that's just going to push all the money into some other brand new loophole, you know, that there isn't legislation for. And, you know, it right. could take it could take years just to get the first thing taken care of and then you're just playing whack-a-mole on the next thing, right? And then it comes to, you know, offshoring money and then it comes to inheritance taxes and, you know, and, and so it, it really is more about the person that, that they're going to take a look at everything, no matter what the policy is and what the legislation is, that they're going to have really have the American people's interest at heart rather than this elite class, which we've been serving for decades. I mean, you know, going back to you know, you can argue Reagan was a pivotal moment, but you know, it's been like this ever since the Gilded Age. It's been, you know, it's been like this throughout history 
ebbing and flowing. I would say that maybe one of the better moments that we should look to is after World War II when Eisenhower had these really, really high marginal tax rates, right? They were like 70%, 80%, 90% on the very, very rich. That incentivized them to put the money back in their businesses because as soon as they take it out into their pocket, they have to pay these enormous taxes and they don't want to do that. And so that worked for a long time to really grow the economy and it helped all boats. There was a lot of jobs and there was a lot of expansion people were taking risks because it almost didn't matter. Even if you lost the money, you're better off than paying such a high tax rate. And then, you know, eventually all the loopholes started to appear and all the creative accounting. And and so I guess that's where we are now. We're kind of like at the end of that whole process. But, you know, we do need to get back to basic fairness. I don't think there's a lot of people that would say, do you want to deny low-income students of having basic education? I mean, I think if you put it that way, they would all say, yes. But when it comes to like New York State, when it's been kind of floated to take the statewide funding and put it in a kitty that then goes through, you know, a very kind of blind formula based on poverty and need, New York State was very much against that. And you had a lot of the affluent suburban areas saying, "Uh uh-uh, we are not going to subsidize schools in some other area. We're going to subsidize schools in our area. So there it goes to kind of like the property tax mechanism around the state, except for the really, really big cities where we just have these these huge dense urban areas and New York City being the prime example like 40% of the state so yeah I mean it's really interesting discussion and how that will be negotiated I want people to know that I endorse (laughs) Erica Vladimir when I first met her and I sat down and talked to her um, it would be amazing if we had somebody like this going up to Washington and (laughs) representing us and bringing information back, right? And kind of like forging kind of like a new awareness with, you know, with the constituents in just the stuff that we haven't been doing, that we've just been mailing in for so long. And that includes Carolyn Maloney. You know, what, what research I was able to get on her wasn't hot. I mean, she supported charter schools like 20 years ago, pretty much all the Democrats did. She's been very quiet. If there was anything on her and, you know, school privatization, it's been scrubbed. And then, of course, you know, I've made maybe four attempts to get a a comment from her or a statement from her communications person or anything, and I've just been ghosted, you know, ever since going back to this past summer. So, you know, not very communicative as far as getting her education policy views on record when she's facing a multiple primary challengers. So, um, right, I, and I think her her silence is actually quite deafening and shows that education is is not a priority. And as a congressional representative, as a congressional leader, I would be prioritizing education. I really see the value in the federal government helping to lift up students and and make sure that we are in fact educating the whole child. So there's so much more that, you know, Washington can be doing to help our states and our school districts and our schools and our students. And it's time that it's time that they do more. And like you said, I would be bringing that information back to not just our district, but our city as a whole, because our city is the entire school district and helping not only helping parents and, you know, educators and, and guardians, but also asking them to help me. I don't want to just bring the information back from D.C. I want to bring the information from our school district to D.C. and make sure that anything that I am championing is coming from 
our school district, that it's not because I think I know best, but it's because the teachers who are actually teaching our students, they're the ones who know best. I want to talk to them. I want to carry their voices, our principals, the guidance counselors, and, and our social workers, and, and even, how I'm going to say, our future guidance counselors and social workers, because right now in New York City, we have more police officers in our schools than we do guidance counselors and social workers. That is something the federal government can get involved in. Let's start, you know, pushing for more community school development and funding, and let's get the federal government involved. And when you have a representative who's going to prioritize education, you're prioritizing the future of our city, and that's what we need. We need to look not at the last 30 years, but the next 30 years. And so we need a representative who's going to make sure that the world that we are leaving is A, better for our our children and our students, and B, that our students are ready to actually take on the world. And that is sorely missed. Um, You know, New York has no shortage of education activists and parent groups and teacher groups. I'm part of New York BATS. I'm part of New York Allies for Public Education. And we have been really locked out of those conversations with elected officials and education officials upstate and and in D.C. So it would be it would be a really welcome change to see, you know, some responsive representatives and uh, really elevating the discussion. Even if we disagree, just to have the discussion publicly would be, you know, uh, an improvement. So I noticed that we're really over time. Before (laughs) we say goodbye, is there anything that you wanted to uh, let the people listening know, um, any way that they can uh, connect with you or something that we didn't cover? So, you know, you can go to my website, Erica, E-R-I-C-A, 4NY.com, where I have more of my policy platform laid out and more about who I am as a person and, and why I'm choosing to run. And all my contact information and social media information is on there. So I encourage everyone who's listening, uh, you know, to reach out. We can continue our conversations on education and I also wanted to let everyone know that next, this coming Monday, December 16th at noon, I'm holding a press conference on the steps of City Hall where we're going to be calling on our federally elected officials to start codifying Title IX protections. And these are protections against gender-based violence. Um, not only a lot of people think of it just in college, but Title IX also protects our students in kindergarten through 12th grade as well against gender-based violence. And we are days away from Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump from decimating those protections and releasing final rules that are really going to set us back and set back those protections by decades. Um, and it's going to make it so that victims don't feel as comfortable and safe and supported um, when coming forward. We are already struggling here in New York City. Um, last year, there's an organization, Girls for Gender Equity, that really led the call for more Title IX coordinators here in New York City, because at one point, we only had one. No. One Title IX coordinator <laughs> for 1.1 million children. And now I believe we're up to, it's either seven or eight. But we need to make sure that there are rules and that there are laws in place to protect students so that those Title IX coordinators are actually empowered by the law to protect students against gender-based violence. And so I, I urge everyone who, you know, believes that we deserve a more compassionate and inclusive and forward-thinking 
society and government and that we should be protecting our students uh, to join me on the 16th at noon on the steps of City Hall. That sounds like a great issue, and I'm I'm really appreciative because it's it's not one that I've come across, and I and I do try to follow all these different education things. I know Betsy DeVos and Trump already rolled back protections on college campuses in the case of sexual assault allegations, and uh, you know you you wouldn't think that any anybody would do that go kind of go backwards right and favor the assaulters but uh, but that's what happened and and it sounds like they're trying to do the same thing all the way down to you know to the to young children level here yeah so, so that's that's something i definitely want to uh check out a little more and i appreciate that i'm gonna try and uh if i can't catch your i'll be working but i can't if uh if i can't catch your um press conference live then maybe we could see it afterwards yeah definitely we're going to make sure we're live streaming it so we'll have it posted on social media after that you can take a look and i hope everyone who's listening can join me yeah it sounds like a great issue so we really want to thank uh, erica vladimir for calling in today um hopefully we can speak again soon um it's really great for me to talk to somebody that knows education policy case law i mean we did not even scratch the surface and we, you know what we could have but it's really a, we thrill. Have a lot more to discuss <laughs> yeah there's just there's just so much there really is so we want to thank erica we'll talk to you again soon and we're going to sign off here at new york update we want to invite people back uh tuesdays at 7 p.m you can catch our archives anytime at nyupdate.org so thanks a lot erica and have a great night thank you for having me have a good night okay bye-bye All right, so we are signing off, and we want to thank Richard, as always. What an interview. We went a little bit over, but that's Erica. So, yeah, you heard her speak. I mean, she definitely knows her stuff. You know, I encourage everybody to uh, go out there and support her. And if you live in the district, vote for Erica in the primaries, okay? It's long overdue that they had a real progressive in there instead of a 30-year incumbent go-along-to-get-along Democrat. All right, so... That's it for me. We want to thank Richard, and we will see you guys next time.